had the privilege of walking through this book. It's amazing to me to think about it's been about a year um, since we started. Shane, how long have you guys been doing it? Did you guys start before us? I'm not sure. I think we might start after y'all. Was it about I a year I stole though? the idea from y'all. Well, yeah. Well, stealing Romans is a good idea. So, hey, Jesse. Hey. Did, what about, did you guys start like February, March? We started in February. Okay. Good deal. That's that's amazing. You guys have been about a year or two. Well, um, today, chapter ten, and uh, Joshua, would you start? Maybe start back there in chapter nine, um, verse thirty-two about Israel's unbelief. And um, could you please read all the way to? Uh, 17. We're going to try to get pretty aggressive and get to 17 today. Um, you know, once you've read the 17, though, you might as well read the whole rest of the deal. So let's go all the way to 21, if you would. Yep. Well, then. All right. Good deal. Let's let's read that. We'll pray and, and uh, get busy. All right. 9.32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, <clears throat> that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or... Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, and in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. <clears throat> For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, 
I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Wow. Carter, can you pray for us? Father, thank you so much for the privilege that you give us to open up your word and to um, open up Paul's letter and understand uh, what you have to say here for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what you have uh, sovereignly ordained Paul to write. I pray that it would be to both of our encouragements, to uh, us teaching and to those listening. God, I pray you would guide us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John Stott, um, who started this. He's always a good outliner. Um, this is your grandma's friend, John Stott. Steve, right? Didn't your um, mom sit by John Stott on a piano bench? One time. Yep. I think it made John Stott the man he is today, <laughs> or was today. But um, he had some really neat contrasts in verse 32. He said, all right, there's faith and works. Boy, we have talked about that one, hasn't he, from kind of uh, from the beginning, it seems. And then in 10.3, that's really 9.32. In 10.3, there's this idea of God's righteousness and our righteousness. There's that contrast there. And then 10.4, about Christ and the law. How are you going to get God's righteousness? Is it going to be through Christ, having Christ's imputed righteousness, which he's already explained right all the way back to chapter 3 on that really thorough explanation of the gospel, verse 21 to 26. And we can go back and see kind of Paul's argument all through there. But in 10.5, it's now the righteousness by the law to be saved by, if righteousness was by the law, to be saved by the law would be an absolute perfection to every detail. In order to be saved by the law, you would have to obey it completely. That's kind of the idea we're getting to here. And and he's giving great news, especially like saying the Jews did not get this, but the Gentiles have this great privilege. We have this great privilege. The Jews can too, in that the gospel is very accessible to everybody. And so that's the idea today is to say, if it was by the law, none of us would be saved. But it's not. It is through faith. It is through faith in Christ. And because of that, the accessibility of that is um, to everybody and really easily acceptable to put your faith in Christ. Josh, this part on 5, 6... Seven, eight, nine. Every time I've read it in the past, it's a confusing argument to me a little bit. Kind of help us to understand this. Yeah, there's a number of Old Testament quotes Paul takes and and uses, I think, to drive home a point there from five to eight. I think uh, I'll read some from Boyce, but his summary of five through eight is basically... um, the, the way of works and the way of faith are two mutually exclusive uh, ends, I guess, if you will. But um, before I get there, I want to just make a few introductory comments. But in this whole section, I think even going back to 930, 
all the way down through halfway of chapter 10, we kind of are returning to some well-trodden paths. And this is around the idea of righteousness. And of course, we know that took center stage in chapter 3 and is one of the main themes of this entire letter, that there is now a righteousness apart from works based on faith through the work of Christ. And I think that word and the word justified is used maybe 10 times in this whole section. And uh, Doug Moose said earlier in the letter, if, if uh, the doctrine of righteousness is used to show that it comes only through faith, in this section, Paul is using this cardinal doctrine to show why so many Gentiles are being saved. So there's a little bit of an analysis of why this righteousness has come now to the Gentiles. And we know in this whole section, the thesis being the word of God has not failed. His word is true. His promises are certain. And um, we even see right before this section some of Paul's heart that his countrymen come to faith. At the beginning of chapter 9, remember he said uh, he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart uh, for the sake of his brothers. He wanted them to come to know Christ. And then here in chapter 10, he says that his heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. And so Paul has this firm belief in God's sovereignty and election. But yet he also is not a stoic, distant, sort of hyper-Calvinist type of uh, person. He eagerly desires that his countrymen would come to saving faith. And so that we, we don't see a bifurcation or a splitting of his belief in election and then his eager and earnest prayers on behalf of the uh, Jews. But uh, we saw that there, they had a zeal that was not according to knowledge and... That leads us right into 5 through 8, where Paul develops this analysis of a, a righteousness on the law versus faith. Um, this section was really confusing. Some of these quotes are, are hard to understand, like what, who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? Who will descend to the abyss to bring Christ up? And I found Bo uh, Jim Boyce to be extremely, extremely helpful. And I'm just going to read a, a lengthy quote here that I think helps explain what's going on here. And um, <clears throat> here's what Boyce says. Um, Paul had quoted some from Leviticus 18.5, uh, the, the, in verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That phrase, commandments shall live by them. Uh, here's what Boyce says. In Leviticus, Moses seems to be telling the people that they need to keep the law and that if they keep it, they will enjoy abundant life. That is true, of course. On the simplest level, it is true that any person will be blessed to the extent that he or she lives according to the revealed law of God. That is uh, only a way of saying that people who love God keep the Sabbath, honor their parents, tell the truth, are faithful in their marriages and do not steal or covet things that are not theirs will be happy. People who dishonor God, break faith, cheat, lie, and live for material possessions are miserable. Boyce goes on and says, In addition, the text can be taken as saying that if the Jews would keep God's law to the extent that people can keep God's law, God would prosper the nation. This is also true. God will do the same at any time with any nation, ours included. He said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, 
and I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Here's where I think Boyce helps explain what this quote is meaning, because Paul uses it in a little bit of a different way. Boyce goes on and says, But Paul is not drawing these points from the quotation, and some who have noticed the difference have supposed that he is misusing it. That is not the case. Paul would readily acknowledge what I just said, namely that morality is better than immorality and brings blessing, but he would also add two important truths. First, in religion, we are talking about more than mere morality. We're talking about how a person can be right with God. If we approach the text at that level, allowing the word live, there in verse 5, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. I think this is Paul's unique uh, interpretation here. If we approach the text at that level, allowing the word live to speak not merely of a happy life here, but of eternal life, we need to acknowledge that no one is able to keep the law well enough to reap this great benefit. It is true that anyone who is able to keep the law perfectly will be rewarded by God with eternal life, but nobody does keep the law perfectly. Therefore, salvation is beyond the grasp of those who are merely law keepers. Right standing before God must be sought in a different way entirely, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And lastly, the boys close is saying this. Second, Paul would add that the way of works and the way of faith cannot be mixed, which in my judgment is how he uses the text from Leviticus here. The way of works is the way of law, he says. If you think you're going to be saved by law, it is by keeping the law that you must try to be saved, but you cannot make up for your deficiencies by adding faith to it, just as it is also impossible to begin by faith and then add law. Well, that voice did a helpful job explaining that a little bit. Hopefully that made some sense, but it was a really tricky section. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. MacArthur said that in 7 to 10 there, the gospel is neither remote nor unavailable. Um, he had a pretty good summary. I thought is is interesting. Remember, the law is the thermometer, not the medicine. The law is only there to show us how sick we are right and how desperately we need a savior good night turn back to chapter three as just a reminder and that uh, was good for us we should probably read this every morning before we go anywhere just as a reminder of where we were apart from christ look at verse 10 as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one and so we know that the law is, we can't obey it. We realize that. And even if that wasn't in there right there, you and I know that about our own hearts, don't we? We just know how quick we are to stray. And that the deceitful of our, us, the deceitfulness of our hearts ah, gets us every day in some ways. The pride and the, the maybe it's envy or, you know, selfishness and just laziness and this goes on and on of the kind of things that we're battling until we uh, get to go home and so we can be so thankful i just today i'm so overwhelmed with gratefulness that it wasn't about obeying the law that's what this passage has has made me just so thankful for that three good points of summary here that macarthur said 
the man who, and none of these are going to be surprising, but it's just so good to reiterate what he's talking about here in Romans. The man who pursues salvation by trying to keep the law will be judged on the basis of that effort. So if we're trying to keep the law, we're going to be judged by the law. The only way to be saved is for it to be perfect, and we know that we're not even in that hemisphere. Okay, so we can be thankful for that. Number two, it is impossible to keep all the law. We would wholeheartedly agree with that. Number three, the inevitable failure of works righteousness results in eternal damnation. And so anybody that chooses to say, oh, and here, please think with me. How sad is it that if we went and we did a little survey on whatever UJK anywhere and say, hey, is God going to let you into heaven upright? See, I think so. And then what are they going to say? Why would he allow you into heaven? And what are they going to say? Because I'm pretty pretty good, right? I've done more good stuff than bad stuff, maybe. I would think that's the majority answer out there. And we just see that as believers, that's what we've come to wholeheartedly disagree with. I have not done what I should do. That's why I need a Savior. And I cannot. And, and it's just, and, and we saw that all the way back in chapter 5 with the contrast between Adam and Jesus, right? Through Adam, we've inherited sin, condemnation, and death. And th only through Christ can we get righteousness, justification, and life. And so there's these contrasts are constantly through Romans, right? Just Shane, I bet you guys have seen that, huh? They're just over and over, and I love the way he does that. And just the unbeliever is sitting in this camp, and we're in a whole different place. The, the encouragement that comes today, I hope, floods your soul today, is to say, so thankful yeah. that it's not according to the law. Yeah. Just if you had any, like you've seen that throughout too. Of course, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, this whole week I've been overwhelmed by the thought that I am such an incredible sinner, and yet God loves me yeah. through his son. Yeah, isn't that? And don't you think that's probably the response that yeah. we ought to be feeling? I think that's exactly it, yeah. and it is overwhelming. And doesn't it make you want to just love him and serve him and be devoted to him and just to say let me increase decrease let him increase you know john three thirty, that idea and when you get to 10 9 here um i'm coming to you grant i'm looking forward to what you have look at 10 9 um because macarthur had one really neat point on this yet because if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And um, MacArthur, and not surprisingly, because he goes here often, talks about lordship salvation there. That Jesus, and I hadn't known these numbers before, Je Jesus is called our Savior ten times in the New Testament. Guess how many times he's called our Lord? Seven hundred. Seven hundred times our Lord, ten times our Savior. Is he our Savior? Absolutely. But primarily, Jesus is Lord. And that's what we confess with our mouth. That's what we believe in our heart, is when he is Lord, he dominates. He, he, he is 
everything to us. We don't call the shots anymore. And uh, and I think, Kyle, like you're saying, Shane, when we realize our own depravity and our inability to keep the law, we can just be so thankful that his righteousness has been imputed to our account. Our sin was imputed or credited to him. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, the contrast with a wage and a gift. We get the gift. He took our sin. And I hope that overwhelms us. I know it's the basic gospel, but the basic gospel, as uh, whew, I think um, Scott has taught us so well, just is overwhelming in life every day. Grant? Yeah, so... Maybe just continuing on here, verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what a, like right here just in the middle of this argument, about Israel, we have this wonderful, succinct, clear view of saving faith and what salvation is and, and how we are saved. Um, but I wanted to focus more so on verses 12 and 13 first, then I'll come back to uh, verse 11. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this, I think, is showing that there is only one way of salvation. Jesus is the only true Lord. And it's through him that we and true Israel, um, the remnant, is saved, are saved. So I wanted to go back to Acts 15 to read some of this from Peter to show the same thing that's going on that Paul is talking about. That there's only one way of salvation. Um, <clears throat> so Acts 15, starting in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter after there had been much debate. Uh, talking about the Mosaic law being applied to Gentiles uh, and circumcision. Uh, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be safe through the grace, um, that we will be safe through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So the way of salvation is through Christ for both Jew and Gentile. There's only one way of salvation. And I think as I was reading that, I was just so thankful for it that salvation has come to the Gentiles. That means you and I, if you're a Gentile like me, that we have access to salvation through Christ. What a wonderful thing that is available to us that it uh, was not always freely and openly available as it is to us today with God's Word. Uh, and it's, salvation is so near to us. Um, it's a wonderful thing, but I wanted to go back <clears throat> and sort of set the scene a little bit and maybe read some hard things before I get to the fact that we would not be put to shame and the hope of the gospel. Um, but I wanted to show that even in the Acts passage, we see that 
the religious system wanting to be placed upon the Gentiles, this, um, what we talked about last week, that the Jews want to build this religious system of works, and that it's so easy to convert back to that, to want to have a works-based salvation instead of trusting only in Christ for salvation. So I'm just going to read through, because I think it's important to have that on the back of our mind, the similarity, similarity that we have to that today. But Christ came to save the sick, not the righteous. <clears throat> we should hold that in the back of our minds. Um, that it is similar today what happened and is still happening with the Jews. They sought to establish their own righteousness, as we saw from the beginning of this chapter. Uh, and they have a willful unbelief. But that um, can be similar to what happens today with our own religious systems and um, that we put in place, we can become so self-deceived that we become proud in our own systems. We can become self-righteous, thinking about our confession of sin and prayer to God compared to others. And if we think about that, we're proud of our own self-admission of failure. That's what sin does. It so twists the mind that we can become so self-deceived, we can become proud of the very things that should show us how pitiful we really are. And I was thinking about it this past week because I saw some of the... Um, I guess the inauguration of, of King Charles, and it just made me think how quick we are to set up religious systems that become lost in their own self-importance and godlessness. And if we think about the Church of England and the fact that now King Charles is the head of the Church of England, the so-called defender of the faith, it's just mind-boggling. That's how twisted man's religious systems can quickly become. We're only one generation away from something like that at all times. Um, <clears throat> And applied to us more specifically, we can think we're good Christians, we hold down a good job, we're active citizens in our community, we raise our family well, we provide for them, teach them well, we remain loyal to them, we go to church and serve. It is entirely possible to become proud thinking that stuff, that stuff qualifies us as good now in the sight of God. He will deal with me more favorably now because I do all this stuff, and now we're his people because we do all that stuff, instead of the fact that he deals with us in accordance with the propitiation that's found in Christ. We are his people because of his enacting grace and our union with Christ. And we have to remember that if, even if we did everything perfectly, um, we would have done nothing special. We would only have done what is required. Um, we tend to lower the standard down to the average around us, and if we're doing a little bit better than that average, that's good enough. And that's what you were talking about, Terry. If we ask the average person, they think they can get into heaven because they're a little bit better than they are bad. But the standard is perfection, <clears throat> and that's only what is required. But getting into today's passage with what living faith looks like and how we are saved apart from our works, John Calvin comments on this passage that the emphasis on believing with the heart shows that faith is a firm and effectual confidence and not a bare notion only. Saving faith is not simply knowing the truth about Jesus or believing the facts about his life, although these things are necessary. Saving faith also requires personal trust in Jesus for salvation, the belief that his work and promises apply to us specifically. If we believe such things, we are saved. And just to elaborate on that, because sometimes it's easy to hear we should just trust in Christ and not really know what, what does that exactly mean to trust in Christ? How is that different from just knowing about him? And I think it means this in some, some way. Maybe this isn't the full definition, but... We must be banking on the fact that Jesus' Jesus's propitiation for us is complete, that we will stand on the day of judgment because of his righteousness alone applied to us, that he really has made us right with God the Father. We cannot have any inkling that it might be mixed with God showing leniency to us because of our religiosity, 
our religion will only condemn us further without Christ because our guilt will be greater. There is no leniency when God is the judge, no mercy on the final day for those outside the rock of Christ. God will hold you like a loathsome spider of the pit of destruction and cast you there justly no matter what you say and you will have nothing to say in the face of his judgment. He will not relent or give extra time or be a lenient judge because we went to church and served. It's Christ or nothing. And I wanted to read this because I encountered it maybe in the most impactful way uh, through a book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul where he's quoting from Jonathan Edwards. So a lengthy quote, but I think it sort of sets the stage for the alternative of salvation through Christ. Edwards says this, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. However, you may have reformed your life in many things, and you may have had religious affections, and may keep up a form of religion in your families and in your closets, and in the house of God, and may be strict in it. You are thus in the hands of an angry God. Tis nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict and sober and religious they may otherwise be. So that's the view that uh, Jonathan Edwards paints for us Mm -hmm. outside of Christ, outside of the rock of his blood. That's what awaits anybody, religious or not, moral, immoral. The end is the same, and it's everlasting destruction. But the good news is 11, verses 11 and 13, that Christ bestows his riches on all. Salvation is near and available. There is no ladder to climb, no complicated path of intellect or physical exertion that must be undertaken. Those that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We who believe will not be put to shame. I think that means finally, because we know in this life we are naked, famine, all the day long we're being killed. Christians are put to shame on a daily basis. So I think this is talking about on the final day, we will not be put to shame. Because on the last day, we will be saved and counted righteous because of what Christ has accomplished in our place. God will really be propitiated to us through Christ. His good works will really be applied to us. His intercession on our behalf will be complete. We really will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Christ really will save us and welcome us. We really will be glorified and be like him. If we trust him in this way, if we bank on him alone for salvation, 
we can be sure that we will be saved. He will not fail or turn from us on the last day. We have no fear of shame on that day because we have the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost of our lives. There is no condemnation to be had because of him. There's only one way of salvation, and it's so near and so available to us and to all who call in the name of the Lord. Salvation is available in Christ. There's no work that needs to be done. It's just through him, trusting that he really will save us, that we will stand because of what he has accomplished in his life, in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So I thought that was extremely moving just to have this uh, succinct gospel message right in the middle of this argument. Yeah. Wow. That really goes with Shane what you were saying a minute ago. Like mm-hmm. I, Once we think like that, and especially taking that Jonathan Edwards quote, to heart from sinners of the hands of an angry God, what a... Oh, what an amazing thing that God gripped us from, from that mess that we were in. And... Uh, so close to being without him for eternity, which is just just terrifying. Um, I'm really looking forward, Carter, to, to this then, because now he goes to say, well, what is necessary for salvation? We see that it's easily accessible. Um, and, and really getting to 14 um, to 17 here, Carter, help us, help us with this. And wouldn't you say... That if you had just read Romans 9, and I love this, is how it's in back-to-back chapters. If you just read Romans 9, you would say, hey, wait a second here. This has nothing to do. We have nothing more to do. This is just kind of like you almost, like my students kind of say, aren't we kind of robots then if this is the way God is sovereign in election? And then you get to chapter 10, and if you just read this, you would say, no, no, no. It's all about us getting the gospel out there to, to people. And so there's just this, like, like he always does in Scripture, he doesn't explain how the two work together, but he surely shows us that God is sovereign in election, and we are responsible to get the gospel out there. Carter. Yeah, I'm just going to start in verse 13 and read all the way to 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But, those ha- but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So in verses 14 through 17, Paul, I think Paul, what he's communicating here is that Israel's failure to believe in Christ is inexcusable. And in order to communicate this, that Israel is without excuse for rejecting Christ, he lays out four conditions. And the four conditions that he lays out are absolutely necessary, like you said, for someone to call upon the name of the Lord. These things must be met beforehand for someone to um, call upon Christ and be saved. And he lays these conditions out in the questions that he asks from 14 to 17. The first condition, if you'll look, is in the question, is in the latest question, uh, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So what is absolutely necessary, the first condition, preachers must be sent. They must be commissioned. And what must they be commissioned to do? Why are they sent? 
in the latter part of four, uh, verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The preachers are sent and they're commissioned to preach and proclaim Christ and Him crucified. They're sent to proclaim the gospel and to allow people to hear the truth of what God is doing for them and what He has done and accomplished. So in verse 14, in sort of the middle part there, the next question, and how are they to believe in Him of whom they, of whom they have never heard? So not only must preachers be sent, preachers must preach, and the people must hear the message. They must hear the gospel. And then the first question that Paul put, puts forth in verse 14, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? So the responsibility is given to the Israelites themselves. They must, have, they must bank on Christ. They must themselves trust in Christ and call upon the name of Christ in order to be saved. So why, why do the Jews, why are they without excuse? Well, because God Himself has fulfilled the first three conditions. He sent the preachers. He sent the apostles. He, he sent and commissioned all of His disciples to go and make more disciples and to proclaim Christ and to proclaim Him throughout the whole planet. So the preachers were sent, and the preachers most definitely proclaimed the gospel. It was loud and clear. There was no, there was no mistaking that. So the preachers were sent, the preachers preached, and the people were sovereignly placed in a position to hear the gospel. God in His mercy didn't even owe them that. But in His sovereignty, He placed them in a position to be able to physically sense the words of the gospel, the words that proclaim Christ. They were able to hear the message preached. But what, even though the Lord sovereignly decreed that preachers were should be sent and that preachers should preach and that the people would be able to hear. The people plugged their ears and Israel would not listen. They rejected Christ. And not only did they reject Christ, they rejected Him as Lord. And so since they did not believe in Christ and they rejected Him, even when God allowed all these things to happen, like I just, all the things that had to line up in order to hear the gospel and to come to faith in Christ, even for me, is just astounding. But He has provided all these things, and yet they, they still reject Christ vehemently. So they were without excuse. And I just want to tie that back to just like Paul's main argument uh, that he begins in, in the beginning of verse, I mean, of chapter 9. So. Why does this matter in the grand scheme of things? So the Jews are without excuse. So they rejected Christ and they are held accountable for that. In the context of Paul's argument, this means that God is absolutely faithful to His promises. The promises won't fall. They're kept. Um, <clears throat> God's promises stand. And His word is not null and void because Israel failed to obtain the promise. Israel failed to obtain the promise because they rejected Christ because Christ was the only way that God had provided for men to be reconciled to Himself. And the thing is that God didn't owe Israel anything. He didn't owe them anything when He made the promise. And just the same, He doesn't owe Israel anything. He doesn't owe us anything either. Because, I mean, we just went uh, to chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. Evil begets evil. And hearts filled with maliciousness with pride with selfishness all these things what does that lead to it only leads to a world which is a slew of corruption 
So God doesn't owe us anything. He's not obligated to grant us mercy. But because God is holy, He is completely different from us. Because of who He is and His goodness, He intervenes and He interrupts the full course of human history and intervenes on our behalf. He, die, he lives a perfect life on our behalf. And then He takes upon, upon Himself the, our, our sin and our evil. And He bears the wrath of God and the punishment of God. And it crushes Him to the point of death, but He's raised from the dead to validate His Father's promises and to vindicate His people. So God is not, absolutely not, unfaithful to His promise. And that would, I think that's what Paul was getting at. And just from chapter, like the beginning of chapter 9 all the way up to this point. And um, I think we'll see that too in chapter 11. That's really good. You might remember if you go back to 9-6, both Josh and Carter have done a good job of reminding us, it comes from this first question, but is it... But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That's the kind of the opening question. And, and if you get a chance, listen to Mark on Romans 9. Um, he talks about that too. But we would say, okay. Um, and we have students ask this at school a lot. Surely God could not condemn someone who hadn't heard the gospel. Especially from this, you, you say, wait a second. God couldn't, somebody that hasn't heard the gospel... Surely they're not going to end up in hell. But I want to quick kind of address that and then close with just the great news. Guys, I would like you to just talk about the great news of the word from 117 and, and I mean 1017. And um, uh, Thomas, if you had anything on 1017, could you probably taught on that? That would be great to hear to close this. But go back to 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What, who is this shown to? Everybody. This is general revelation. Okay, and verse 20 is, should be very motivating for us to go get the gospel to everybody. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so that what? So that they are without excuse. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, that was in Gentiles, are without excuse, anybody. It, general revelation, how about chapter 2, verse 1? You therefore, now turning toward the Jews, you therefore have no excuse. And Carl, you did a great job of explaining they have heard it. Oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So we see from the beginning of the argument in Romans that God says there, no one has an excuse here. Right? Every single person realizes, and, then we, and he goes on to make arguments. They know it in their heart. They see God in general revelation. And I'm just overwhelmed with Ken 17. Faith, how blessed and privileged are we? If we just take this to today, how blessed and privileged are we to have had the Word of God to study in Sunday school? And many of you grew up hearing the Word of God. Uh, Miss Elizabeth, I think your situation is so incredible. 
that God brought the word to your, to you, to, to give you the joy of salvation, and now you're bringing it to countless people. Um, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Why is that just such a thrilling verse? So often we think faith uh, comes through this, but so does sanctification. Jesus prays 17, 17, John 17, 17. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. So this is how we're saved, and this is how we're sanctified. Don't neglect the word of God. Grant anything on 17. What makes you thankful for that? Um, I, I don't know that I have much, but I guess just after reading that Jonathan Edwards quote, I, I was just thinking about my own salvation and was so thankful that um, I don't know, whatever it was, 25 years of self-deception yeah. didn't stay, that God chose to reveal His Son to me through the teaching of His Word. And um, I, I don't know, I just, trying to think back to that time, is just, I guess it's easy to expect leniency, that yeah. judgment would never happen severely to me, maybe to other people, but there'll be some leniency. You know, we live in, the world of leniency we can get out of that speeding ticket or it won't go on our insurance or there'll be extra time for that assignment extra credit to get the grade up at the end but like on the final day there were just there's no leniency to be had outside of Christ and so I was thinking about that and was so thankful uh, when the first time I read that Jonathan Edwards quote in book club with Scott it felt like somebody was standing on my chest because I realized what had passed me by I was so close to that for so many years that that could have been true for me and that God could have looked at me like that, and it wouldn't matter what I say, there would have been no leniency to be had. But he chose instead to honor or to answer the prayers of my parents, and through the teaching of the teaching, the discussion, and the um, singing about his word at North Avenue through various people and through just a whole host of circumstances that brought me here, he chose to open my eyes to the word and. Um, make me righteous in Christ, which is just an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah. The Word did surgery. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word. Josh? I think I was reading Revelation earlier this week, and there's the, the scene with, with uh, John before the throne of God. And it says, The heavens and the earth flee before his throne. And then the, these books are brought out of all the works that people have done. And then there's another book that's brought out, and it's for every name that's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And um, the, the uh, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, and then those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life are thrown into the lake of fire. And it, uh, I think just what you were saying, thinking about that is a reminder of what a privilege and what good news salvation really is for each one of us. And... Um, for the Word of God, what refreshment it is to our souls in long days, long weeks, when we're weary, when we're burdened with many cares and trials and afflictions, the eternal future hope that we have, and um, how we can go on in this life, we're, we're sustained by the very Word of God and the hope and the truth that's found in it. Love it. Carter? I could just... <clears throat> I was just thinking back to when these guys would just labor over me like a couple of years ago and it just seemed like yesterday that 
the questions would come and I'd just hurl hurl it at them and we just there was so much fascination with the word I mean it came alive it really did um, and the things that had to like be put into place in order that the Lord might break me down and make me look up to him it's just the grace of God is phenomenal yeah and just every single individual case so you're so right Thomas it's been a year now what would you say about 1017 I don't know if I have anything else to add I think um, I can relate a lot to what Grant said I'm very thankful for it um, I was reading um, John this week and um, you know it, it's actually stuck out to me more and more about what a gift um, faith is from God. Um, John six twenty nine. Definitely recommend looking that up. It's been really cool. But um, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Thanks, Grant. Can you close this? Sure. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for. Um, your word and for this study in Romans and for this local church father and all those that you've brought to be part of it thank you for them and Father, thank you for bringing them here um, Father, I'm very thankful for your word and what it does to open eyes to salvation and Father you've done that so many times here at North Avenue so thankful for it and I pray that you would contend continue to do it father and that others would come to know you through your word being taught um, without shame and father um, i pray that we would not neglect your word it's a privilege to have it in our language and available in so many ways i pray that we would all not neglect it but that we would strive to understand what it says more each day and that we would um go to it continually and not neglect it, Father, and that we would be strengthened by it and that we would finish um, the race that's set before us. And I pray that you would sustain us all, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Lord willing, 10, 18 is where we'll start um, next week.